sport administrators, sport fans and participants themselves. Sarah and Ash sit down with a bunch of inspiring female leaders from within the sports industry who share their journey of achieving their aspirations. Today we have the pleasure of welcoming Christina Matthews to the podcast. Christina is the current CEO of the Western Australian Cricket Association. Cricket has always been in Christina's blood. She was in the Australian women's cricket team from 1991 to 1994 and still holds the amazing record for being the country's most capped female test player. Since retiring, Christina has moved into sports administration and held numerous leadership positions at organisations such as Women's Cricket Australia, the Bowlmain District Cricket Club, Cricket Australia, Cricket New South Wales, and now the Western Australian Cricket Association. Thank you so much for joining us, Christina, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. I'll start by saying I actually played from 84 to 95. <laughs> it was a longer career than that four years, so I had an 11-year career, so uh, which was pretty good fun. We'll correct our, uh, our stats <laughs> yeah. um, I played for New South Wales in that period you spoke about. That time, well, there you go. It's pretty a pretty good record then. So we'll, we'll get into that, but maybe we can go back to even before then. And yep. if you could tell us maybe the thing that we we ask everyone who we have as a guest is, can you tell us to your uh, can you tell us about your earliest memory in sport? I reckon my earliest memory of sport is I, I started going to football, uh, what is now AFL football. It was VFL football at the time. When I was four years old, my aunt and uncle used to take me to Fitzroy games every week. So that's probably my earliest memory. But beyond that, in my primary school years, I just remember playing footy and cricket with the boys in the street. At school, the only formal sport that girls could play was softball and netball. So particularly with netball, I worked out pretty early that mixing football and netball didn't work. I got a lot of penalties in netball as a result of that. It's just being involved in sport, both watching and, and playing as a, you know, a, a kid in primary school. And Christina, you obviously had an um, impressive cricket career. When did you start taking up cricket and getting involved in that game? So formally, I joined my first cricket club when I was 12. I'd always played in the street or at school in the nets with the boys. And uh, I lived in Victoria at the time and we moved from Nunawading to Glen Waverley and there was a women's team that played in that suburb. And my mum saw it and said, would you want, do you want to go down and try out? So, you know, I came to understand that at that time there was around 120 teams in Victoria, adult teams with kids playing in them. So I think there was me, a 13-year-old and a 14-year-old, and then it went to 21 and the oldest was 38 in my first year. I just love being part of a team. And the camaraderie with Carmen was with that, but also working with people uh, to achieve something and, and to make things better. And I'm sure that plays a lot into your current role, which, as we said, is the CEO of the WAC. And I can imagine that's a pretty all-encompassing role when you imagine a sport like cricket's got high-performance community. There's so much marketing and things like that that go into it and it would be such a wide-ranging role. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about what a typical week in your role might look like? Yeah, interestingly, uh, as I said, I started playing when I was 12, but I also got on my first committee when I was 14, and I was a volunteer in some way, shape or form until I came to Perth nine years ago. So I had a really well-rounded volunteer career, which I think set me up for being um, a CEO as I am now. In terms of what a typical week looks like, I'm not sure there is such a thing as a typical week, but you can pretty much imagine a lot about meetings, a lot about relationship development, getting a, being across all sorts of things. But no one day 
Uh, no two days are the same. The cricket season itself has the added excitement of the competitions, which I think is what we all live for. And the off-season is all about planning and looking ahead and, and and seeing where you're going. So I wouldn't change it for anything being uh, working in sport. You mentioned there that you joined a committee, I think you said at the age of 14, and you've sort of had yeah. various volunteer roles ever since. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about some of those volunteer roles and how they have shaped your career to date? I mean, 14's a there's not many industries in the world where you can start a volunteer role at 14 and it then start to feed into your career later, so it's pretty impressive. Yeah, I, I, look, I don't know if I was just a, a nosy kid and I wanted to know what was going on, but if I look back as a kid, I was really always interested in business, not in a way of, you know, some kids create share portfolios, but I just love to think that one day I would be in charge of something. I had no idea how or what, but I think when you're seven and you want for Christmas a briefcase, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> so through my volunteer roles, I had the opportunity, you know, by just being a committee member, being a secretary at different times, a president of the club. I, I managed in a part-time role what's now called a Premier Cricket Club that had men's and women's teams. I worked as a coach, social committee, publicity. Also, you know, there, there wasn't a job in a cricket club that I didn't do except finance. They never trusted me with that. So I got a really good grounding in how to work with people and how to get people to come on a journey. I think the role, there's two roles in my volunteer life that I think set me up for what I do now. One was I ran the Balmain Cricket Club, which is now the Sydney Cricket Club, in a part-time capacity. So um, I was responsible for everything. But part of uh, during my time, we bought an ING Cup game off Cricket New South Wales. So I was living in Sydney by this time. And we paid a fee to Cricket New South Wales to allow us to run an ING Cup game at our local ground, Dremoyne Oval. Never been done before. And, of course, having paid 15000 we had to make sure we made more than 15000 That game ended up being incredibly successful. We had a full house for the day. We sold corporate hospitality. And I think we made $45,000 on that event. We had a volunteer workforce of 45 people uh, across the day, um, which I set up, and uh, an organising committee, um, which I led. So that, from a business side, was really important. From a people side, it was my role as uh, chair of selectors with the Australian women's team, learning how to have difficult conversations while giving people encouragement that it wasn't the end of the road or bringing them into the team and making them aware of what of their responsibilities were in that team. That turns out to be, as a CEO, what you do more often than not, which is managing people, their expectations, bringing the best out of them and making them accountable when they're not bringing their best self to work. Yeah, that's really insightful. And I imagine you you know, you still use those skills that you learnt today because as a CEO, you would be working with numerous stakeholders, both within your organisation and external to your organisation. What do you think are the key skills you need to be able to use to do this successfully? Oh, I think, uh, well, firstly, you've got to have good interpersonal skills, uh, a high degree of emotional intelligence. But I think understanding that you know, any transaction, if I can call it that, 
needs to understand what each side gets from it, not just what you get from it. If you can go into any negotiation or relationship understanding what's in it for the other party, you can help deliver that as well as achieve your aims in that um, relationship. So I think too often, particularly in modern day, we look at it from one side and so therefore things become much more combative or tactical in how you go about getting what you need. But I think the really fine line is when have you got enough? So if you're doing a negotiation, you don't want to leave the other side feeling like they've just been stripped of all dignity and they've got nothing to live for. You want them to go, you know what, that was a really good experience and this partnership is really going to be good for both of us. Yeah, I think that's really great advice and it's one that sort of comes up every time we do this with a guest is making sure you're getting value out of both both sides of the relationship and don't just go in thinking what what can work for me and um, I think it's really important. It probably brings us to a bit around the way you work as well and in doing some reading, I guess you've redefined the way that the WACA approaches their business, so more of a strategic focus, committing to community engagement, managing to ensure like a successful future. How do you think, how are some of the practical ways you've gone about achieving this and implementing some of these strategies? I think importantly, it's making sure you've got a clear vision for the organisation and a very clear strategy and that people are part of that journey and feel some ownership of that strategy. And I think importantly also, it's making ensure your structure matches your strategy and people are clear on what their roles and responsibilities on and also the KPIs for success. You know, sport in the past, uh, back when I first started, it was all on gut instinct, your experience. I, I just know this is going to work. And then, you know, the people working around you really don't know what part they play in that. But uh, giving everybody a really clear understanding and ensuring they understand the part they play is important. I I like to think of um, what we do as a jigsaw puzzle and everybody's a very key piece to that puzzle. So it all ends up, you know, with with a great picture. But I also think apart from the obvious about strong financial skills and whatever, it's about, I really think equity in your business is important and diversity and inclusion. We're a sports association that happens to deliver elite competition, grassroots competition, as well as a range of activities in the community with diverse groups. None of those activities are a result of someone missing out. They all can be part of our association and our role is to ensure we're always reflecting the community and particularly as over the last 20 years our communities have changed so much. So creating that diversity in your organisation and the inclusion is really important to really represent the community that you're involved in. Yeah, it sounds like you're obviously really passionate about that area. Is that something that you've brought into the WACA and I guess have made a difference in since your time there? Absolutely. If I look back, I've done it no matter where I was in the way that I could. It's something that is very challenging to people if it's not been part of the sort of the the makeup of the organisation. So I don't think you can ever go into an organisation, put a stake in the ground and go, this is what we're going to do. It's all about, well, how how do we embed this in a way that doesn't challenge people too much and and gets them on board without even realising they've got on board. So But what it does take is a lot of planning and foresight in terms of what are staff you need, who are the staff 
that you come into contact in other areas that you think, gee, they'd be good to get in our organisation. So you're looking for the opportunities way before you need to enact an opportunity. You touched on there that it was quite challenging. What would you say has been your biggest challenge within your career in sport? Look, I think being a female in sport, the biggest challenge is always having to fight for credibility. Very much different to a male sports person or a male administrator. Their credibility seems to follow them, but it's almost like every new role you go into, you've got to justify why you're there and spend some time getting people to trust you. That's a little better now than it used to be, but it still really is a big challenge for women in sports industries, particularly ones that have traditionally been male-oriented. So, yeah, if I could finish my time working in sport and have made uh, shifted that dial a lot further, I'll be happy. And so I find that really interesting for someone who, you know, represented their country, achieved so much within the sport that you still had to kind of fight for credibility within the industry. I got a lot of kudos for being a good female administrator. Now, that meant for a woman, you're really good, or for the women's game, you're really good. There was never that you're a good administrator, full stop, and you could step into that. There have been plenty of jobs I didn't get purely on the basis that a woman had never done them before and they weren't ready for that risk. I find that it's obviously really sad and it is nice to hear that, you know, I think it is changing, but there's still a long way to go. In a sport like cricket where, you know, I think you said your career started in terms of playing in the 80s, it's so much more advanced compared to some of the other sports where they're only just starting to get elite female competitions up. Do you feel like cricket does have a bit of an advantage because it did have some of that, I guess, more elite female participation earlier or did it still need to catch up a fair bit? It's interesting. I I don't know whether it's an advantage or greater credibility. There has been a lot of work done for a very long time by dedicated women to ensure that there was a pathway of some sort for women in the game. Interstate competition for women started in 1931 in a formalised way. International competition started in 1934. So we've got a really strong record of women playing the game. As the traditional male governing body and female governing body came together, there was an opportunity to really move the game forward. Now, it did take a while for the men to think of it more as something other than a nice thing they were doing, to really see an opportunity. And I think Cricket Australia particularly with the way the Women's Big Bash League took off. That was unexpected by everyone in the same way that AFLW's instant success was unexpected by the governing body. Uh, They may tell you they expected it, but they didn't. They were kind of putting a toe in the water to test to see if the community could cope with. But we've probably had more to build on that once we realise, when I say we, once that the powers that be at Cricket Australia at the time understood the opportunity they had, where in football sense, they're still trying to get to the stage where, because they've got 18 teams, how can they have all clubs with a women's team? We're luckier because we've... In a state competition, we've only got six. In a BBL sense, we've got eight, so we can easily match those up. But, yeah, I I think we come to the the party with a lot more credibility and a lot more history in having developed our game. You mentioned previously around, you know, you might not have got a job because females hadn't been in that position before or there's, you know, the saying of a you're a good female administrator. 
This is something that I found probably is really representative of that. And so obviously we do a bit of research um, on our guests before we, we speak to them. And you were around when, you know, a few years ago, perhaps the biggest scandal in, in cricket in Australia happened for some time with the sandpaper incident in South Africa. And I watched some clips. I remember watching it at the time when you were sitting next to Cameron during his interview. The first thing I thought was, oh, thank God someone's sitting there with him because all these media conferences has gone on like these these men had killed someone. But the news reporters actually thought you were his mother sitting there. You know, I, I remember there's a Channel 10. I'm close to being his grandmother, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, I think they just automatically assumed that this lady was his, his mother. But you were there as obviously the CEO of the WACA. Can you take us through, I guess, what made you decide to join that press conference and what skills you used to help navigate that period, which I can only imagine was was crazy period for you? Well, there, there's a couple of things. To, uh, it, it was good. I actually had no idea that that press conference going live across Australia. I thought it was a Western Australian press conference. So that was probably lucky. I think what I did then was just an extension of how we were and continue to run our business, which is about people make mistakes, you work with them to realise their mistake and help them get better. Cameron is one of our players. He's a very well-respected player within our system. We do know that well, he, of the three players involved, he was the most disposable in terms of he was new in the team. He hadn't had a, a profile really yet. So coming back to Perth, he really wasn't going to be looked after by Cricket Australia. So we knew we had to do that. So it wasn't really a hard decision. It just seemed obvious to me. And we needed Cameron to know he wasn't alone and that we were there to help him through what he was going to go through. I certainly tried to make it clear that we did not excuse him for what he did, but we did realise that our responsibility was to help him get through it and become a better person at the end of it. And did you, you know, post the conference probably when you found out it went nationwide, not just to, to WA, did you find out that people thought you were his mother and that, you know, this is just another obvious classic generalisation of women working in sport and within leadership positions? No one ever said to me that and I didn't hear anybody say <laughs> that. But it kind of seems logical that that's what people would think. I think if they were really watching, you'll note that there's a part in the press conference where Cameron starts to tear up and I put my arm around him and then I thought, oh, that looks a bit dorky. So then I put my hand on his leg. I thought that looks worse. Because So if anybody had seen that interaction, they would have known I wasn't his mother because I, I didn't know where to put my hands. So um, there was nothing motherly about it. So, But yeah, I mean, people are generally not evolved enough to think, oh, she's in charge of that place. Uh, obviously, the people in Perth knew, but I can imagine others were sort of going, who is that woman? So yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit sad that we think that's the, the logical conclusion that can, people can draw. But I think the way you spoke to that then is part of the advantages of having female leaders, you know, the empathy that you can show and the understanding and sort of bringing it back to saying this is a person and we need to show him care and he's going through this and, yes, he's made a mistake. It's not necessarily black and white. And it probably brings us to our next question that 
you know, at the moment um, in Australia, in terms of CEO positions, there's definitely a lack of female representation. And we've seen a fair few changes over the recent months and years. And I think even in the cricket industry, in terms of CEO, female leaders at first class cricket associations, I think there's only three around the world um, or something like that. What do you think needs to be done to address this like what can help this situation yeah interesting like oh look it's really pleasing only recently uh olivia thornton's been named a ceo of the act cricket association now act isn't a first class cricket association but it is part of cricket australia and the the australian cricket landscape so it's really exciting to have another woman around the ceo table when we have meetings look i i think part of it is I say men because men generally outweigh us, you know, 20 to 1 in any of those environments. It's the men seeing the possibilities. In Olivia's case, she contacted me some time ago saying that her boss had said to her he felt she could become the next CEO. So she rang me to say, I just want to have a chat about how you think I should work to do that, what I should do. And then unbeknownst to anybody, It was only a couple of months before her boss moved on to somewhere else and she was given the job. So there was a very short time gap. But the the point is the man who was in charge of her organisation recognised her potential and encouraged her to think of that herself because up until that point she said it never occurred to me. So part of it is we we get very used to being in management but not the leader and sometimes we need some encouragement to do that. Yeah, I think it's a really good point that you raised. And a lot of the guests that we have on here have mentioned that they have either formal or informal um, mentors that help them throughout their career. Is this something you've used throughout your career or is there, I guess, anyone that you look to for inspiration or professional development as you continue to lead within the sports industry? One of my um, characteristics that I I now realise is a great strength is I'm naturally curious. So I can't say that I had what people now formally label as mentors, but there were people I sought out who I found interesting or who I admired to talk to or to position myself to be able to have a conversation with them. There are others who know better, who I'm going to talk through issues with. My curiosity has led me to learn from others, but also take on opportunities when they were presented to me. And I took on those opportunities, not always with the greatest deal of confidence, but more on the fact that I someone had asked me to do it and I didn't want to fail, so I went ahead and did it. If you knew what was actually going on inside me from a nerves point of view or a, a, an insecurity point of view, you'd be surprised. But it's kind of having that challenge of the insecurity and and breaking through it to take the opportunities that are presented to you. Yeah, I think that's really good advice in terms of like everyone has their insecurities or their fears and, you know, generally the people that are most successful are the, the ones that are open about that but finding a way to overcome them. Obviously, your legacy as a cricket player is, is there and it's such an amazing thing to be the most um, capped female test player. But what about your legacy as a sports administrator? What would you like that to be? Well, there's probably a number. Obviously, one of them is ensuring that the women's game has grown and uh, particularly being in charge here in WA, that when I leave, it's got a structure that can withstand um, time. But strangely, in the job I'm in now, one one of the things I'll leave here most proud of 
is we've secured $60 million in federal and state government funding to redevelop that this ground. We've had the ground for 125 years and no one before me has been able to obtain that funding. So to be able to achieve that um, when no one else has been able to do it and leave WA Cricket with facilities that will service their male, female and diversity um, programs, it makes me um, pretty proud and it's something that will live well beyond me. Yeah, that's a that's a huge piece of work. And one of the questions, although I think you might have just covered it, is what's been one of the most rewarding things within your administration role within sport? Or is there, you know, something that's that's really stood out for you apart from what you've just mentioned? Yeah, uh, look, uh, there is one thing. Uh, a lot of my um, sport administrator life was in coaching and development. And in 1997, the Australian team went to India for the 50-over World Cup and um, I was uh, the National Coaching and Development Manager at the time for Women's Cricket Australia. And as a result of a couple of things, I ended up being manager for for that tour. But I was heavily involved in the lead-up to that tour in planning the program leading up to that tournament, working with the coach on how we were going to go about winning it. And it it turned out to be an integral part and a turning point for the women's game in Australia. We did win the tournament, but the really key thing was um, the final was in Calcutta and it was a crowd of 60,000 people. Now, timing is really important in any sort of historical change. And that tournament final happened to be played between the Boxing Day test and the Sydney test starting in the 97-98 season. Because there were 60,000 people there and because we won and it was a dead air period for sport in Australia, we got unbelievable blanket coverage back in Australia. We were then informed that we were all being flown back to Sydney to be part of an on-field parade at the Sydney Test Match against South Africa that year. We were put up in hotels. We were entertained all day. And that time in Sydney gave us an opportunity to uh, develop a relationship with the Commonwealth Bank, which is where their now more than 20-year partnership started with the Australian women's team, and probably forced Cricket Australia into a much more serious relationship with the women's game. So it was the start of the, you know, a really pivotal point in the careers for Belinda Clark, Karen Rolton, Catherine Fitzpatrick, Zoe Goss and many others who are now involved in coaching or administrating the um, game. So, you know, from a cricket, purely cricket point of view, that is something I'll never forget. Yeah, that's huge. And what a rewarding piece of work. Our last question is one that, I mean, you've covered off quite a bit and you've given some really good tips so far, but what are the top three tips you would give to a a budding female sports administrator starting her journey? One is uh, don't listen to the negative voice in your head because we all have them or on your shoulder, wherever your negative voice comes from. Just back yourself. I think two would be it's a long journey. You know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So don't get despondent if things don't happen quickly. And also, don't be scared to move sideways. I got to where I am in a very 
zigzag pathway. Started as a secretary in a football association, um, the VFA in Victoria. I moved into sport development with uh, the Women's Cricket Australia and then coaching and then administration. And then at some point, it occurred to me that I had to work in the business of the game to have any real influence. So don't map out your journey and think it's just going to be linear. Be prepared to, to move sideways and around. Yeah, that's great. Thank you so much. And I also think that we need to add in, ask for a briefcase as your, I think, seventh birthday <laughs> present as well. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, no, no, that's, um, it was really great pieces of advice all the way throughout and we really appreciate your time and we look forward to hearing how the redevelopment and everything like that's tracking and we wish you all the best for um, the next, next stage. Thanks very much for your time. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Sports Intuition Podcast. If you did, we would greatly appreciate you taking the time to leave us a rating and any reviews. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss our next episode.